Franklin Covey's On Leadership podcast series. My name is Scott Miller, and I serve as your ongoing host. You know, there are guests that we book that have fantastic value to all of our listeners, and you may or may not resonate with their teachings, their life story, or with what they've most recently written in their book, And then there is the phenom Mel Robbins, who is in the On Leadership House today. I am a raving fan. I've been a follower of hers for decades. Mel Robbins has written two most recently seminal books. Of course, The Five-Second Rule, followed by her recent release, The High Five Habit, that have both swept the literary world by storm. Mel Robbins, welcome, and thank you for joining us today on Leadership. Scott, I got to say, your enthusiasm is off the chain, uh, and we all need you in our lives. I could feel myself like feeling like re-energized just hearing the enthusiasm in your voice. So I am going to bring the firepower today, gonna, since you are too. I'm going to text you my wife's mobile phone number. Would you pay me a compliment to her so she's not so fatigued on my energy and enthusiasm after 13 years? But to her horror. No, no. And let me tell you why. Because if I were to pay a compliment about you to your wife, who is annoyed by your enthusiasm, it would only make her in- her annoyance with you go through the roof. So it, out of respect for you and your marriage, I am going to politely decline that because I think it'll backfire. Well, we have three young boys that are 7, 9, and 11. And to my wife's horror, they all have my energy and personality. So they're doing a job on our marriage, trust me. Um, we're, we, we, we're convinced they plot every evening in the attic, how do we destroy their marriage tomorrow? And they plot every day, but we are persevering. Mel Robbins, you have just come off a whirlwind tour on your new book, The Habit, The High Five Habit, following, of course, the, the first book that you launched, The Five Second Rule, may or may not have been your first book, the first book I was aware of. We've been trying to land you as a guest for several months. Your book was you know, swept Amazon. You've been all over the world uh, speaking virtually, of course, and and writing and podcasting and hosting. You've had a long career and journey. You were a a news commentator on 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 a major news network. You, of course, were, I believe, a criminal defense attorney. You've had uh, a very open and vulnerable relationship with your followers and viewers and people you coach about your own anxiety and and trauma and struggles in your own life. Your social media is one of, I think, the most valuable out there that I follow in terms of your own transparency and vulnerability. You've had a television program, you uh, podcast, you are one of the most booked keynote speakers in the world. You continue to keynote all the time. Mel, would you fill in some of the blanks for the last one or two humans listening to our podcast around the world? Give us a quick condensed version of the highlights of your career and what led you to write this recent book called The High Five Habit. (laughs) Well, you know, it's interesting because um, when I hear you list off all these things that I've done, there's a a part of my mind that fills in a blank Hmm. and it's saying, who is he talking about? Hmm. Like, I literally... (laughs) feel kind of disconnected from the amount of stuff that I've done. But, you know, I I think that one of the things that's really unique about me is that my brand of personal development and transformation and inspiration typically requires me to either fall in a hole or dig one for myself. Uh, personally, professionally, and it's when I hit a low moment and I realize, oh my gosh, no one's coming. 
to solve this for me. I need to manufacture a ladder that's going to help me climb out of where I am, whether that is mental, whether it is uh, physical habits, whether it's something that's a process thing or a personnel thing going on in business. And it's through the struggles that I have had in my life, in my work, with our kids, in being an entrepreneur, that I have discovered some of the greatest tools that have been transformative in my own life. And so I think one of the interesting things is, is that people view me as an expert in change, an expert in habits, an expert in motivation, both of self and in others. I don't view myself as that. I view myself as somebody who is a light on the path that you are walking on. And the reason why I know I'm a light on the path is because somehow we've connected and you're listening to this or you're watching this. And so you are meant to hear something that we are about to talk about and that it's through the sharing of particularly the struggles and the sharing of the simple tactics, tools, research, or stories that have helped me in similar situations that has created um, all of the success, all of the impact that you see today. And I think that those two things are really important. The struggle is just as important as the solution because I think that in life and in business, it is through the breakdowns and it's through the hard moments in our lives and in our work that we build confidence, that we build courage, that we build resilience. I mean, think about engineering, for example. A lot of times, some of the best and most innovative ideas in terms of coding or in terms of a process or in terms of a product is when something's not working and when you make a mistake or when you spend all this time working on something and you run headfirst into a brick wall. And unfortunately, both in corporate culture and in our personal lives, for some reason, we all feel like we got to hide our mistakes. But it's in the examining and unpacking and learning from our mistakes that you find the greatest wisdom. You find the solutions that you're looking for. And so, you know, that's the importance of sharing struggle makes you realize you're not alone. It pulls the stigma and shame away from making mistakes, which is the only way that you innovate. It's the only way that you keep moving forward. And then the, the solutions are important because they give hope, they give a plan, and they give tactics. And you know, the final thing that I'll say is that I think the thing that I have a real knack for is that I have this ability to take really complex topics and boil them down into very simple, tactical and memorable things to do. And what I've found over the course of my life is that we all make a major mistake. And the major mistake that we make when it comes to changing anything is that we believe that just because the problem that we're facing is big or the dream or goal that we have is big, that somehow the solution is also big. And I have found it is the exact opposite. The bigger the problem, the smaller the solution. The larger the goal, the tinier, the tinier the tactic will be to get you started and keep you moving toward it. 
and the psychology supports that. Look at all the books uh, written about habits, whether it's B.J. Fogg, Tiny Habits, or James Clear, or Stephen Covey, or Charles Duhigg. They all talk about making these trim tab adjustments in their lives. You're right on. Mel, um, I've just dedicated my 30-year career to the leadership development industry, and my first book was called Management Mess to Leadership Success, 30 Challenges to Become the Leader You Would Follow. And it did extraordinarily well, mainly because, much like you, okay, not two million copies, but much like you, my book touched a nerve in terms of sort of the underbelly of leadership and how hard leadership is and that it's important to own your mess because then you can make it safe for others to own theirs and teach through your mistakes. I would argue that you are one of the lead thought leaders that has ushered in the safety of having the conversation around anxiety and trauma and your challenges and really helping to make vulnerability and actual parenting, spousal, friend, leadership, competency. You talk frequently and openly on your social media and in your books about your own struggle with anxiety and panic disorders, and I don't mean to put you in the spot for that, but is there anything you would follow up with that that would help our audience of millions of people around the world that perhaps have a, a colleague or a spouse or their boss or an employee, child, that perhaps is facing some of those issues, or they themselves as well, that would maybe give everybody um, um, a light and some inspiration this morning? Yeah, of course. So I would tackle it in two different ways. Uh, I'd tackle it in two different ways when you're dealing with um, somebody at work, especially if you're the manager or the leader at work, and somebody in your personal life. And the reason why I say that is because I think it's really important to be compassionate and understanding and supportive of you know everybody in your life. But I'm not out to turn leaders and managers or anybody into a therapist. Because the fact of the matter is when somebody's struggling, whether they're struggling with anxiety or depression, or they're struggling with issues related to trauma or PTSD, or heck, they're just struggling because we're yeah. still living through a global pandemic and every single human being's nervous system right now has been switched into a state or fight or flight. And yeah. so, you know, everybody after two years of this, Scott, is living in a condition in their bodies that human beings are not designed to live in. We all feel emotionally taxed. We all feel the fatigue from being on Zoom conference calls all day long. We all feel the giant, oh, are you kidding me? As we see the virus continue to mutate and closings and this and that. And so at this moment, what leaders need to know is your team is emotionally, physically, and spiritually gassed. What they need from you is they need more appreciation. They need to be given a little bit more trust. And what I'm going to say about that, and I, I've been hammering this in speeches. I've been hammering this because I believe that every single company had the exact same response when the pandemic hit. And it is a very typical response because it's a, a response that tracks to the normal anxiety response. So as we unpack anxiety, Scott, I'm gonna talk about a bunch of different things, but I promise we will end up in a place where there's lots of takeaway. So anxiety, first and foremost, everybody, it's a very important thing to have in life. 
Yes, you heard Mel Robbins say that. Anxiety is really important because all that anxiety is, is anxiety is an internal alarm system that is hardwired in your nervous system. And that alarm system has one job. The alarm system called anxiety has the job of making you pay attention. That's it. There is some kind of threat, some kind of uncertainty. When anxiety races through your body, you come alive and you go into a state of hyperfocus. Your nervous system switches into your sympathetic nervous system. You immediately go on edge. Your spidey senses come up. Your prefrontal cortex engages. Your heart starts to race. All of this, by the way, tied to evolution to keep you safe. Anxiety is a good thing when there is an actual threat. Yeah. So for example, let's say, Scott, that you and I are driving down the road and we're chatting up a storm and we're driving, you know, to go do a speech or whatever. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a semi truck cuts right into our lane and you have to swerve, right, to get out of the way. As that semi truck, Scott, cuts into our lane, what do you feel in your body? A rush of adrenaline, fear for my life. I need to take yeah. immediate control over my safety because that driver doesn't know I'm alive or he wouldn't have cut in my lane. Yeah, like immediately anxiety rips through your body and anxiety is serving a purpose. It's sounding the alarm so that you stop talking to me and you pay attention. And all of a sudden your brain takes over, you swerve without even thinking about it and your heart races and all the blood runs to your major organs so that you can go into a state of hyperfocus. The reason why people feel nervous or anxious or excited before a test or before a speech is because you're going into a state of hyperfocus. Anxiety, that feeling in your body is now making you align with what you're about to do so you can focus on it and perform. In, this, in the example that I just gave you, anxiety served a purpose. And here's what's interesting. As the truck pulls away and you kind of pull back into your lane, what happens in your body now that the truck is gone and we're driving down the road safely? In my body or my wife's body? <laughs> in your body. <laughs> well, in my body, I would, uh, that anxiety probably stays for a little while, not for an hour, but probably, you know, uh, 45 seconds or so as I begin to calm down and kind of put it into context and we're safe, we're alive, it's not going to happen again probably immediately. So... I probably recover pretty quickly, but there's a, there's a, a lingering effect. Yeah, uh, and you're absolutely right about the 45 seconds because it is less than 90 seconds that most people switch from one emotional state to the other when there's intellectual context. So your body starts to slow down and it goes from the on-edge state, alert state, into what's called the parasympathetic state, which is your kind of rest and relax state, in about 90 seconds because your brain sees the truck leave and your brain goes, oh, no threat. The problem for people today, and this is true of everybody on your team, is that we have been living in a heightened state of uncertainty. And every single person on the planet, their nervous system right now is either flipped into the fight or flight mode of feeling on edge or it easily, it's like a trigger, immediately flips into it. And so the normal things that somebody wouldn't stress out, they're super stressed out. Um, and this is important to understand because 
I want you to, as a leader, to think about, first, let's talk about work. Assume that most people are at the end of their rope. They're trying the best that they can. They are burning the candle at both ends. They're having a hard time focusing and concentrating. And they're feeling uncertain and on edge. Because even if their work life is good, there's something going on with their kids at college. There's something going on with their kids in the high school. There's something going on with somebody in their family. And you know the, the spike in this sense of anxiety, the spike that we're seeing in terms of people's mental health is extraordinary. And I'm sure you're hearing the same thing from corporations that I'm hearing, which is that the number one concern that people have right now at the highest level in every single company, whether they're publicly traded or they're a small family business, is the well-being of their employees. And so one thing that you can do is, number one, you can encourage people to take time off. Number two, you can consciously, as a leader, make a strategic and intentional decision to move out of the mode that your company has been in for probably two years. Because there are three phases to this pandemic that has impacted every corporation on the planet and every leader on the planet. Phase number one was life as it used to be, right? Because when the pandemic first hit, it was sort of like, oh my gosh, what's changing about life as it used to be? What life as it used to be? We're going to go back to the way life used to be. Phase number two was full on crisis. Oh my gosh, we're in this. Yeah. And what you saw is you saw an anxiety response from every single company on the planet because we had to. Everything got turned upside down. The rules got rewritten overnight. Everybody had to pivot and to innovate and to switch and to innovate. Like it was incredible. And there was so much amazingness that came out of it. There is going to be, when we look back on this period, this is going to be one of the most rapid periods of innovation and disruption in a very positive way when it comes to business operations, the way that people work, like all kinds of stuff. But one of the disruptions that has been horrible for people is that companies immediately jumped to nonstop video conference calls. And what has happened for human beings who are working hybrid or working remote is that people feel like they need to always be online. And there are lots of companies that also still have a policy two years later that your camera is required to be on. This is a horrible thing to be doing to people. And the reason why it's a horrible thing to be doing to people is number one, it communicates mistrust, which makes somebody who's already stressed out feel even worse. But number two, based on the brain science, here's what we know. If you're on a video conference call and you're staring at yourself, having to stare at yourself activates this part of your brain, Scott. When the prefrontal cortex is engaged, the rate at which you drain the fuel in your brain increases dramatically. The reason why it is so difficult for everybody to be productive right now, for everybody to focus. The reason why people feel more anxious, the reason why people feel more distracted, the reason why people feel like, my gosh, it's one o'clock in the afternoon and I feel like I need three martinis and a nap. Like I have a, four more hours for the rest of the day or 10. The reason is because you are having to work in an environment that is triggering stress and anxiety and being on edge. Staring at yourself all day on camera is draining the fuel in your brain. 
and companies reacted so like panic mode that they haven't pulled back yet and stepped into phase three of the pandemic, which is this is the new reality. Let's stop pretending there is some sort of milestone that is out in the future that's going to solve all this. And let's get strategic and let's get intentional about how we're going to work because everything in the company can't be important or else nothing is. And every meeting can't be 50 people on a Zoom call because nobody can get work done. And we need to go back to getting intentional and strategic about what's important and going back to the basics of making sure people's weekly jobs are aligned with what matters. And we need to allow people and trust them to get their work done. That's one thing that you can do as a leader. Less Zoom calls, more appreciation, and cameras off. That's going to help people a ton when it comes to anxiety at work. The other thing that will help people a ton is triple down on appreciation. What I've uh, figured out in researching the high five habit and having 145,000 people from 91 countries go through a five-day online challenge that I led about the high five habit, in five days, Scott, not a single person reported that this high five habit didn't work. And what I've learned in researching the power of appreciation and developing habits of encouragement is that the most motivating force on the planet is to feel appreciated, to feel like somebody sees you and hears you and actually appreciates you. And I know that you talk about this a lot. People, and we're talking about the great resignation, right? And companies make the mistake of thinking that people are leaving organizations because they're looking for better compensation. That's not true. People leave organizations. There was a huge McKinsey study that, play, that proved this recently. They leave organizations because they don't feel valued or appreciated, and they don't feel like they belong. And so this should be a giant red flag for every leader out there. You've got the great resignation. You've got people really starting to think about what they value and what matters to them. You've got a hybrid work environment where it's going to take more intentionality to make people feel like they belong and to make sure that they feel appreciated. And so you've got to make sure that this is priority number one as you head into this next year, that the focus is on how do I make sure that people's work is getting recognized, that people feel visible and that I am pointing out all the things they're doing right instead of harping on the thing that they're doing wrong. That is something that you can do that goes way beyond the corporate programs that people put in place. It's the basic blocking and tackling of making sure that everybody that reports to you feels appreciated by you. And it takes work. It takes a lot of work to build that as a muscle as a leader. Mel, I have some bad news. Uh, your entire 2022 was just booked solid with keynotes from all of the people that visited your website in the last 12 minutes because what you just said was 
absolutely accurate. And every leader just needs to be reminded, right? We're all under pressure. We're all trying to survive. We all have issues going on in our life. We're trying to pivot and we're trying to disrupt ourselves and stay alive. And you're absolutely right. These are not hard things to do. These are just, these are mandates of anyone who is a leader of people to show appreciation. Here's one thing that you can do, steal this idea. So every morning is part of your morning routine. Um, there are two things that um, will move the needle when it comes to appreciation. Actually, I'm gonna tell you three things based on the research. Um, number one, research from Harvard Business School has shown that simply taking a moment, less than a minute every morning, and I suggest you do it in front of the bathroom mirror and you pair it with this high five habit of high fiving yourself in the mirror. But every single morning after you brush your teeth, I want you to take less than a minute and I want you to set an intention for how you're gonna show up today for the, let's just focus on work because you can do this with family too, but let's focus on work. How are you gonna show up today as a leader at work? And you know, forget about title. If your behavior or your example or your presence changes people, you're a leader in my book. And so how are you going to show up today at work and what are you going to do to impact people? And if you just take less than a minute and reflect on that, and it could literally for the year of 2022 just be, I am going to make sure that people know how much I appreciate them. I'm going to bring an optimistic attitude, which means I'm going to focus on what's going right. And I'm going to remind everybody through our efforts and our attitude, we can actually make a positive impact on whatever challenge or issue we're facing. Pick something that is going to be your intention for how you're going to show up. Research shows simply doing that changes how you show up at work, and it improves your ability to positively impact other people. So that's rule number one that you're going to do. Rule number two, after you then seal it with a high five in the mirror, is I want you to take one moment, and I would do it first thing in the morning, and I want you to send a thank you note to somebody, okay? And here's how you're going to do it. You are going to write to one person a day and try to make it somebody you work with. And then you can expand it out to other people. But if you want to move the needle at work, think of one person, okay? And all you're going to do is thank them. And you're going to tell them what they did. Hey, thank you so much for checking in on me last week. You're going to tell them why that mattered to you. It really made me feel like I belong here. And it's been difficult because it's difficult to start a job working remote. And then you're just going to end it by saying, thank you. I just wanted to tell you, that's it. If you want to supersize it, you could write it on a note, take a photograph, email them the photograph. You could leave them a voice memo. You could leave them a quick video. You can send the email. You could write the letter. Research shows that when you make it a habit to send these notes of thank you, appreciation, what you did, why it mattered to me, and you know what you think of them, thank you very much, that it not only floods the other person with dopamine, it deepens your connection, it deepens your trust, but you also get the benefit of the flood of dopamine and the enhanced sense of trust and belonging. So that's number two, what you could do. Number three, what you could do is borrow the research from Project Aristotle, which is a three-year study that I'm sure many of you know about that was done at Google, where they researched teams across Google and they wanted to know what makes for the most engaged and the most innovative teams at Google. And what they found after crunching the data 
for three years is it comes down to emotional safety. What does that mean? Emotional safety means that people feel appreciated and people feel like they belong. So much so that they feel safe coming to you with their issues. So how do you create emotional safety, particularly where everybody's all fried? Very simple. Whenever you are conducting a meeting, allow people to have their cameras off, of course. But number two, if the size permits, I want you to take on this practice. What you'll notice in meetings is that all the extroverts like me go first. We start popping off and sharing and talking and blah, 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 right? And then there's a whole group of people that either are introverted or shy or new or whatever, and they are not speaking. Your job as the leader is once the introvert extroverts go, you are to call on the folks that aren't talking. And here's how you do it so that you don't put somebody on the spot and you don't create anxiety in them. Instead of asking for an opinion, you simply go, hey, Scott, you know, what do you uh, think about what you've heard so far? Ask for a reaction. Because what you're doing is you're demonstrating to the team that you care about what Scott thinks, whether he's speaking or not, and that you value his participation. And then, of course, when he says something, you compliment, you know, a piece of whatever uh, he just said or she just said or they just said. And what happens is the team is watching. So what they've found is that when you do this, you make sure everybody talks before you end the meeting by asking for people's weigh-in or reactions. The team starts to model it. And when you feel like people care about what you think, when you feel regarded and valued, research also shows that that appreciation, that sense of belonging and value improves your productivity and performance because feeling seen, heard, and appreciated is the truest form of motivation. That's how you cultivate it at work as a leader. Mel, in your life, did you ever have a chance to meet Dr. Stephen R. Covey? No, no. He would have been riveted listening to you the last couple of um, minutes. I want to read a passage from your most recent book, The High Five Habit. In essence, you described what the, the big idea is. But I want to read a passage. It says, it starts with you. If you want more celebration, validation, love, acceptance, and optimism, you must practice giving those things to yourself. For real, it starts with you. If you don't cheer for yourself and your dreams, who else will? If you can't look yourself in the mirror and see someone worth loving, why would anyone else? And speaking of anyone else, um, when you learn to love yourself and support yourself, it helps every relationship in your life. When you can celebrate yourself, it helps you cheer louder for others your friends, your colleagues, your family, your neighbors, and your partner. That's because the relationship with yourself is the foundation of every relationship you have in life. Riff on that. Yeah, this was a huge epiphany for me. And, you know, I'm going to go out on a limb here and assume that since you're listening to um, this or watching this, you, like me, are a high achiever. 
you have very high standards for yourself. You're looking to improve your life. Well, I want to flag a very big mistake that took me 52 years to uncover and to change my own life. And it is the single biggest and most profound change that I have ever discovered. And it is this. At a very young age, I started to realize, and I think, you know, we all have this epiphany where we go, oh, holy cow. When I get good grades, my parents like me and they love me. I get a lot of positive attention when I make the football team. I'm really feeling loved when I make the cheerleading squad. Ooh, when I got into that college or had that major or made that money or bought that nice car, people really gave me a lot of positive attention. And we high achievers make a mistake of fusing what we're doing with our worthiness. We start to believe that we are only worthy of celebration, support, and love when we are doing something that is worth celebrating or worth validating or worth cheering for. And if you don't wake up and separate the things that you're doing and striving for and the goals that you have from your inherent self-worth as a human being, you will forever feel this sense that you're not enough. You will forever feel this void because if your self-worth and your lovability is anchored in achievement, even when you make a million dollars, even when you make the New York Times bestseller list, even when you meet the person of your dreams, the second you achieve that thing, you're going to now look for something else because your worth as a human being depends on what you're doing. The high five habit is all about this radical idea that will change your life. And the idea is this. If you are breathing, you're worthy of celebration. The mere fact that you exist is why you are worthy of being loved and supported and forgiven. And it's why you deserve kindness. It's not because you made it to the gym. It's not because you're making a hundred grand. It's not because you just got promoted. Should you celebrate those wins? Of course. But those wins are not the reason why you're an extraordinary human being. And, you know, I had this all knotted up and, you know, I wondered why, why, why did I, you know, every time I achieved my goals, I would still see a woman in the mirror that wasn't enough. I was my own worst critic. And by critic, this is what I mean. I was relentless in focusing on what wasn't working. I was relentless in pointing out to myself all the things I did wrong instead of the thousand things I was doing right. Yeah. And that constant grinding beatdown was so just much the default, I wasn't even aware of it until I discovered the power of high-fiving myself in the mirror and silencing that critic. And, you know, I'll tell you an even more personal thing that I bet a bunch of you are going to really relate to. So when I discovered the high-five 
habit. And it was just by dumb luck. I was going through a lot in my life. It was April of 2020. There was a lot going on in my business. This was before the PPP loans had come out. The speaking business was in a free fall. My television show had been canceled. My kids, our kids had come home and they were just, just exploding with anxiety and grief and anger about college getting canceled. Like it was just like a mess. And I would wake up in the morning and I just felt overwhelmed by my life. And it doesn't even matter what's going on in the backdrop because I think we've all had that experience where you just feel overwhelmed by your to-do list. You feel overwhelmed by how busy your life is. You feel overwhelmed by the issues that you're facing. Even though there's other amazing things going on, it's like the overwhelm that drags you down. And so I'm standing in the bathroom and I look at myself in the mirror and I immediately begin with the beat down. I'm like, oh God, you look terrible. And the lines on my neck and one boobs hanging lower than the other. And you know, I did the circles under my eyes. And then of course, once your mindset goes critical, it rests there. So it went from attacking my physical appearance to why do I wake up so late? God, I got eight minutes to get on a Zoom call. You, you forgot to text Scott back. Oh, come on, Mel. Like boom, 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 boom. No grace, no kindness, no compassion. That's how I started my day. And, and, and in this moment, on a random morning on April 2020, all of a sudden, this is divine intervention. There is no question. I stop for a second and I realize, holy cow, that woman in the mirror looks beaten down and overwhelmed. And for whatever reason, I just raised my hand and I gave her a high five in the mirror. And, you know, look, it's not like lightning striked in that moment. But what happened is my shoulders dropped. I laughed because it seemed so stupid. But I felt this like energy shift. It was sort of like a shift, like, all right, okay. Sort of like if a teammate blows a free throw in basketball, when you high five them, it's like, shake it off. Come on. We're going to still win. Get out there. I believe in you. Let's go. It's that kind of mm, energy. And so I felt that. And I kind of had this like, come on, you got a roof over here. You're going to be fine. You're going to figure it out. I know you, I know it's a lot, but you're going to figure it out. Mom. And boom, I went on with my day. And the next day, I did it again. And the next day I did it again. And the next day I did it again. And I started to realize I was feeling something. First of all, the critic was shutting up because the years where the science gets crazy cool. And this isn't just Mel Robbins science. The woman who discovered neuroplasticity 30 years ago, that neuroscientist went bananas. Her head basically exploded when I started discussing the high five habit. Here's what we know happens when you add a simple high five to your morning routine. Number one, you get a drip of dopamine and dopamine is critical. The reason why dopamine is critical is because it boosts your mood. When you simply high five yourself, your brain recognizes the high five because the programming's already in here. Your brain knows what to do when the high five is coming. Boop, dopamine. Dopamine's important because it boosts your mood. We know that your mood in the morning impacts productivity all day long. Second thing that it does, as you go to raise your hand, the first time you do it, you're going to be thinking, Mal, Scott, you, you two have lost me on this. This is so stupid. Like your critic is going to be going because this part of your brain is going to be engaged. The second you get close to me or something crazy happens, your mind goes silent. 
Your mind goes silent because your brain is now triggered by the action. This is called neurobics, an entire field of study about neuropathway activity and physical motion. Your brain goes quiet because your brain recognizes a high five. And so it grabs all the neuro association and programming in your subconscious and it marries it with your reflection. A high five has always said, I believe in you. I see you. I love you. You got this. It is celebration. It is belief. It is confidence. It is optimism. It is resilience. It's motivation. A high five, never in the history of high fives has a high five been, have a terrible day. You are the worst. You're going to fail. That's not what a high five means. That's why your critic shuts up because the high five programming that's already in your brain overrides it. It's incredible. That's the third thing that happens. As you repeat this new action, your brain is watching. This isn't a mantra, which doesn't work, by the way. This is a physical habit your brain is witnessing you do. So your brain starts to see you treating yourself with kindness, compassion, forgiveness, acceptance, support. Your brain's filter, the reticular activity system, is paying attention. It's changing in real time. Do you realize that after adding a simple high five to my morning routine, it took about five days for this to happen, by the way, but I've now done it since April of 2020, every single morning after I brush my teeth, I stack the habit together. It's now programmed as a habit loop in there. Don't even think about it. The benefits are incredible. When I see myself in the mirror, it wouldn't occur to me to think something negative because I have fundamentally rewired my mind. I see a human being that I'm rooting for. I see the person I high five every morning. It's freaking unbelievable. And the way that it's changed me as a leader, I don't look at what's wrong. I focus on what's working. And when something screws up, like this morning, I put up a big post this morning about uh, depression because my husband is now publicly talking about the long-term depression that he's had, that he's been struggling with. And we edited the post really intently because it's a serious topic and I have millions of followers and I would never just send somebody casually out on a stage to talk on my behalf. So everything I post, I get last eyes on. And the post that we edited isn't the one that got posted. And the old Mel Robbins, the negative, critical, you know, like kind of something's wrong, stressed out, that Mel Robbins, the pre-high five habit Mel Robbins, my default would have been, oh, everything, like this kind of reaction to it. The new Mel Robbins was like, oh, okay. I wonder if it was a tech glitch. Well, let's fix it. Like it's, unbelievable to have a default that you have intentionally programmed in that's optimistic, encouraging, supportive. It's life-changing. You'll make a lot more money too because you're not gripping everything so tight. And I want to tell you one more insight because this is super important. You know, when I first said to my husband, who's also an entrepreneur, I think you should try this high five habit thing. I really think you should add it um, to your morning routine. And now keep in mind, my husband is the founder of a men's retreat called Soul Degree. He is all about men going in 
and unbottling the stuff that keeps you feeling like there's a vice on your head or your chest. He is a Buddhist meditation instructor. He's a yoga instructor. He is on the board of advisors of Knowles, the National Outdoor Leadership Institute. He's an incredible guy. And he's been struggling with depression for 10 years. And he has also, unbeknownst to me, been beating the heck out of himself because he failed in his first business as an entrepreneur in the restaurant business. And I know so many of you are going to relate to the story, so I want to tell it to you. You see, Chris and his best friends went into the restaurant business. And, you know, the stats on the restaurant business are bananas. I think it's like, what, 4% of restaurants make it beyond four years or something like that. And so they made it beyond four years. They ended up making it seven years before they sold it to the folks that own it now. But, you know, their first location was amazing. And the, the, we were complete idiots. We cashed our life savings, our kids' college funds. We threw it all into the business. We leveraged the business with our house and credit cards and factoring. And, you know, what could go wrong? Well, then the housing crisis hit. And we found ourselves $800,000 in debt. Chris hadn't been paid for six months. I lost my job. And it was crushing, crushing. That was the first hole that I fell in when I hit rock bottom and I invented the five second rule in that moment to help me get out of bed when the anxiety was so bad that I literally would lay there like a human pot roast marinating in fear over all of our problems. And what's interesting is that as Chris and I have clawed our way out of debt, as we have rewritten our lives and launched new chapters. I've always looked at that period and that business failing as a gift. I've always, and, and Chris's business partner too, was like kind of could shrug his shoulders and be like, hey, entrepreneurship, uh, failure is part of the package here. Doesn't mean you're a failure. Uh, and actually his business partner's like, I'm really proud of what we built. I'm proud of what we, how we were operators. I'm proud of the culture we built. And yeah, like, it didn't return the investment that we thought it would. And I'm also grateful for it, Scott, because without it, I never would have been in such a crisis that I needed the five second rule. So it's like a gift. It wasn't until I asked Chris to add this high five to the mirror and his reaction was this, I think I'll pass, that sounds stupid. And I'm like, uh, excuse me? Uh, okay, but I'm on to something here. Would you just do it for me? Because I need your support. Would you just try it for five days for crying out loud? And so Chris tried the high five in the mirror. You don't say anything. You just raise your hand, high five yourself. That's it. Send yourself into the day with all of that documented benefit. Like you are your own best teammate into the game of life and business, knowing you have your own back, knowing that no matter what happens, you're going to go for it, that you're going to pick yourself up. You're going to, you're going to face it. You got this. After five days, this is what he said to me. He said, Mel, the reason why I thought the high five was stupid is because I look in the mirror and I see somebody that failed. I see somebody that didn't provide for his family. I see somebody that's a bad husband, a bad father because of that. And you only high five somebody that you believe in and you like.
and I think I'm a failure. So why on earth would I high five myself? And I think that in him seeing that, it's illustrative of what's actually holding people back. It's the fact that when you look in the mirror, you are still judging yourself for the mistakes of the past. You're withholding the very support, the very forgiveness, the compassion that you need in order to heal, in order to write a new chapter, in order to be productive, in order to change your habits. You've been outsourcing that appreciation to everybody else, that compassion to everybody else, when really you got to bring it in-house. I had no idea, Scott, that the man standing next to me at the bathroom sink every morning for the last 10 years has been beating himself up over a business that failed. And I looked at the exact same thing and thought it was an extraordinary gift. I didn't believe any of those things about Chris. I thought he was an incredible husband, an incredible father. I thought he was an amazing entrepreneur who through failing and trying stumbled into his true calling, which is this men's re retreat soul degree. And it was really scary to learn just how dark it had gotten for him. And what I'm happy to say is that through therapy and through talking about it and through not bottling it up and through high five and through exercise and through acts of self-compassion, self-kindness, self-appreciation, the fog is lifting. I see the light coming back on. Um, I see my happy husband coming back. And so, you know, it has been a deeply, deeply personal and powerful and transformational experience to not only confront just how awful I've been to myself by just constantly focusing on what's wrong or constantly beating myself up, or you could have done this better, you should have said this, or if only you'd sent this text. And the relief and peace that you feel when you are able to look yourself in the mirror, and even though you may have flubbed the presentation or you didn't meet your quota this year in the sales, or you raised your voice at your kids, or you drank a little too much, or whatever it is that normally you beat yourself up at. If you can have more compassion and kindness with yourself, research shows that of all the behavior change that you could engage in, all of it, exercise, diet, meditation, all behavior change, the number one behavior change that has the greatest impact on your fulfillment and your happiness is making it a habit to be kind to yourself. And so that's what the high five habit is all about. It's about, it begins with a high five in the mirror, but there's so much science in this, so much research in this about habits that train your mind and train your brain, train your body to take the resting default from self-criticism and stress and anxiety and negativity to a resting default of calm, centered, confident, encouraging, and compassionate. And when you can start each day feeling grounded in your body and looking yourself in the mirror and seeing a person that you're rooting for, that you like, that you support, 
you will take that foundational energy and strength back out into the world and it will transform your family. It will transform your teammates. It will transform your company. You getting right with you changes everything. Mel, this has been a gift that you've given to millions of people the last near hour on this podcast, the lives you've touched, the lives you've transformed. Uh, I've been riveted, captivating, listening to you for the last 50 minutes. Thank you for your time. There were enormous, endless options you could have used to invest your last hour. Thank you for investing in Franklin Covey's listeners and viewers. Uh, you know, every year I write a book for HarperCollins called Master Mentors, where I highlight 30 of our favorite podcast guests and bring to light in the book a story about them. And recently I was interviewed by a podcaster about the book that I authored, and I said, he asked me, what do all of the guests have in common on your, on your series? I said, well, the guests that I interview and I write about in Master Mentors, I, I'm now writing the third volume for 2023, I said, they all have an abundance mentality. There isn't a scarce bone in their body. They have a desire to uh, teach through their mistakes, to uh, impart knowledge through their own journey. What drives you? Beyond, obviously, an abundance mentality, what drives you to keep writing and to keep high-fiving and to keep sharing what were very touching and very tender stories about you and your husband? What drives you? Um, you know, I suffered for so long because I didn't know how not to. And, um, you know, I think what drives me is um, knowing how many people um, are suffering and don't need to be. And, um, you know, we do this thing in my company where, um, whew, <laughs> we do this thing in my company where we send around an email every day that is a, um, I call it an impact email because I am deeply driven by impacting the lives of real people. Um, and so we send around this email that is kind of screenshots of comments on social media or DMs on social media or emails or comments in the various online courses that we teach. And they are so moving. And so knowing that on the other end of this conversation is a human being somewhere in the world who is going to bump into this information. And I believe that they are meant to bump into this conversation, this video, this podcast at this exact moment in time, because there's something that I or you are supposed to say that is going to make the switch flip. And somebody is going to go from feeling stuck or alone or isolated or hopeless, and they're going to feel empowered, connected, and they're going to feel a sense of hope. And knowing that that's the impact that everything that we put out is having, because I see it from real people every day, that is what drives me. Mel Robbins, thank you for taking the time today. Your newest book, The High Five Habit, Take Control of Your Life with One Simple Habit, is out. I encourage everyone to pick up a copy. The emotions and the 
the insights that Mel shared in the last 50 plus minutes are a fraction of what you will learn from this book. Mel, thank you again for joining us. Thank you. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation on leadership. <laughs>